creeps. I bid you welcome back to the Eldritch Review podcast. I am Dr. Jack Al Creeper. The Eldritch Review is the podcast dedicated to reviewing and discussing horror movies from anywhere in the 1920s to the 1940s and beyond. Before I get to today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my beloved team over on Universal Monsters Universe. As you are all aware, it is finally October, which is the greatest month in the entire year. And with October comes UMU Aween, a 31-day Halloween celebration hosted by Universal Monsters Universe. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to help host and contribute to this amazing celebration, and it's been so awesome to see others getting in on it as well. If you are unaware, check out Universal Monsters Universe on Instagram at Universal Monsters Universe, or you can even check out my page at The Eldritch Review for the prompts. If you do contribute, which I hope you do, be sure to tag at Universal Monsters Universe and hashtag UMUOween, UMUOWEEN 2021 for a chance to be featured. Happy spooky season, creeps. On today's episode of The Eldritch Review, I am really excited to be talking about the one icon we all know and love. No matter what your favorite monster, favorite monster movie, or no matter how long you've been a fan of the Universal Monsters, there is no way you could possibly forget this guy. The uncanny, the mysterious, the legend, and the one and only, Boris Karloff. Man, I could go forever about Boris Karloff. He was truly Mr. Universal back in his time, and he is truly incredible. I love every last thing about him, from his acting to the horror on his face, and of course, his infamous voice. There's absolutely no way Universal would be as impactful without him, and I am so grateful to now be here to tell you about his story, from his birth to his stardom and everywhere in between. So grab a drink and your snack, sit back, rest in peace. I have a story for you. In November of 1887, in the London suburb of Camberwell, Boris Karloff was born William Henry Pratt and the youngest of nine siblings to Edward John Pratt Jr. and Eliza. His heritage is always considered mixed since it's mostly influenced by his parents' affiliation with the British diplomatic service. As a result of their service, they were highly regarded in the British government. His father spent a lot of his government service in India, which is believed to be the place his parents met and married. His mother's side of the family was East Indian, which gave Karloff a much darker complexion than that of his fellows, including some of his family members. While growing up, Karloff's father abandoned him and the rest of his family at just five years old, which left him to be raised by his mother. That was until two years later when she passed away. Naturally, this devastated Karloff for the rest of his life going forward. Despite tragedy and despair growing up, Karloff would find his biggest outlet, theater, at just nine years old after playing a Demon King in a parish production of Cinderella. Although he enjoyed every minute of it, his love became solidified after watching Gerald Demoyer's interpretation of Captain Hook in a London theater's production of Peter Pan. Karloff's family pressed for him to join the diplomatic service, but he refused entirely, dropping out of King's College in London and by 21 years old, set sail on the Empress of Britain in search of a new life away from his toxic family. By May of 1909, Karloff arrived in Montreal, Canada, where he worked as a farmhand and a manual laborer as he slowly migrated west. A year later, he reached British Columbia and embossed on his acting experience, which surprisingly got him hired with the Gene Russell Players, which was a traveling stock company at the time. It was here he ditched his birth name, William Henry Pratt, to begin going by Boris Karloff. The namesake came from a Russian name on his mother's side of the family, while Boris was developed on the spot. 
Despite all of his acting credits having Boris Karloff, he never legally changed his name, but rather used it as an also known as. As a matter of fact, his daughter Sarah recalls that her father would always sign his legal and personal documents William Henry Pratt, aka Boris Karloff. Though he had finally gotten his big break with the Gene Russell players, it was very sadly shortly lived. In 1912, a massive tornado touched down in the residence Saskatchewan, which killed 41 people and destroyed the theater for which they performed in. Karloff had no choice but to return to his odd jobs until he was hired by another stock company, the Henry St. Clair Players, for about three seasons. It is believed, though not entirely proven, that in this time frame, Karloff married his fellow company member, Olive de Wilton. However, no records of their marriage survives today. After his stint with the St. Clair Players was over, Karloff left for the United States in 1913, which is where he settled in Los Angeles, to compete among several in the motion picture industries. Karloff's first confirmed on-screen, uncredited moment occurred in 1919 in a Douglas Fairbanks silent film entitled His Majesty the American, where he appeared as an extra. Next, he would become a Native American of the Huron tribe in the infamous film The Last of the Mohicans, which gave him a little bit more room to play. Even though he managed to score some roles, Karloff was still a hungry actor with a burning passion to continue pursuing his craft. In this time period, he was married and divorced yet again, only this time it was twice. In July of 1922, he was with musician Montana Lorena Williams, and then in February of 1924, he married and divorced Helene Vivian Sule, who was a Hollywood actress and dancer. At that point, Karloff had a steady job of receiving various roles, though his most common was a villain. In addition, his black eyes and dark complexion gave him the first choice to play Arab sheiks and gangsters, with his most notorious exotic role being a Moroccan bartender in the 1928 film Sharpshooters. Despite all of his famous credits and roles, his most regarded role was in the 1926 film The Bells with Lionel Barrymore, where he played a mesmerist very similar to that of Dr. Caligari in 1920's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. By the time talkies became the norm, Karloff was worried he would lose his job because of his unique voice. But as his daughter Sarah explains, he could do really anything with his voice, so he quickly relaxed with relief knowing that it would all be just fine. In 1930, Karloff married yet again to one Dorothy Stein, who was a librarian in Los Angeles at the time. Though he was successful, he was still considered unknown in the eyes of cinema and Hollywood. By 1931, one year after the death of Lon Chaney, Bela Lugosi was the new hot item after just playing Count Dracula. He was suggested and recommended for the role of Frankenstein, but quickly turned it down after realized there would be no dialogue and heavy makeup work. It was there the director James Whale ran into a bit of a standstill after Lugosi turned it down, but after he watched Karloff as Galloway in Howard Hawke's prison drama The Criminal Code, he found his monster. He met Karloff at the commissionary at Universal and is rumored to have told Karloff, and I quote, You'll feast, Mr. Karloff, end quote. Nobody, not even Karloff, realized the impact this film would have on his career going forward. Forey Ackerman from Famous Monsters of Filmland called it the greatest picturization of fantasy and horror that he had ever seen. Though most of the infamous monster makeup was developed by Jack Pierce, Karloff managed to add some features himself, including the eyelids to make the monster appear more dead, as well as removed a part of his teeth to give the impression of an indenture, which gave the cheeks more dimension as well. 
The makeup took upwards of four hours to complete and was reapplied fresh each day of filming. While the monster's costume might have been incredible, it took such a horrible toll on Karloff. He developed a lifelong chronic back condition for which he had been admitted into the hospital for spinal treatment. When it came time to display the cast of Frankenstein, Karloff was not billed by anything other than a question mark since he was so unknown. But after this film, he was on top of Hollywood. So much so that he was able to only have his last name on posters, lobby cards, and the cast lists themselves. It was such a coveted honor and only three other stars in Hollywood had that opportunity at the time. The others included Rudolph Valentino, Lionel Barrymore, and Greta Garbo. After 25 years of being away, Karloff returned to England in 1933 to film The Ghoul, which was the first British horror talkie. While back in his home country, he managed to meet with his last surviving three brothers who removed their judgment after realizing their brother's dream was actually valid and he made it big after all. After returning to Hollywood and re-entering Universal, Karloff and Lugosi were on top as the two biggest stars of the time period, putting out three incredibly successful projects, The Black Cat, The Invisible Ray, and The Raven. The media and tabloids speculated that since Karloff was so versatile and popular, he developed a rivalry with Bela Lugosi since Lugosi wasn't getting as much work. However, the truth, according to Bela's son Bela Jr., the two gentlemen were very respectful of each other and the only animosity was Lugosi's personal regret that he did not take the role of Frankenstein's monster. This respect and generosity Karloff had was not just for Lugosi but really every person he came into contact with. One of Karloff's oldest friends and a former biographer, Cynthia Lindsay, recounts one time that she was working as a reader when Karloff told her she should write instead. Her excuse was that she did not have a typewriter so she was unable to. However, one day when she woke up in the morning, there was a typewriter on her front porch that Karloff had gifted for her. When he was not acting and making films, Karloff was a very outspoken individual who completely despised injustice and inequality. He was inspired by his major pain whilst creating Frankenstein that he became an advocate for the actor's rights, which led him to become a key organizer in the Screen Actors Guild. It was a great cause but a dangerous following to be a part of since it was a union and not very popular with any of the studios in Hollywood. It was very hush-hush and very centralized to the point where the members who would show up for meetings could not park in the same area as each other. Instead, they had to park blocks apart from each other so as to not raise any eyebrows. Although it could be damaging, Karloff could care less and as his daughter Sarah recounts, he loved being a part of the cause and was proud of all that went into it. In his free time from acting and advocating, Karloff loved to read books with his favorite author being Joseph Conrad, and he was also very active with cricket and tennis being some of his most favorite sports. In 1935, Karloff stepped back into the boots of the Monster of Frankenstein in James Whale's sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein. But more famous than Karloff's appearance was actually the fact that the monster spoke. Karloff had issues with the monster speaking because he was worried that it would compromise his character. However, the film became an international success anyway. With World War II looming in the background, there was great concern about the impact and reception that some of the movies Karloff made would have. As a matter of fact, the British Board of Film Censors threatened Hollywood with an embargo which caused production halt in Karloff's film specialty. For three years, Karloff's work was cut in half. Instead of playing A-list horror roles or big shoots with Universal, he was now given B-list roles which included appearance in double bills or matinees. 
Although his popularity had plummeted, he did not let it get the better of him because he knew what it was like to deal with tough times. In 1938, a depression-stricken Los Angeles theater took a shot in the dark and showed a double bill of Frankenstein and Dracula, which caused a new sensation and gave Karloff the leg up he needed to be loved and recognized again. Karloff, now in his 50s, was given the chance to play the monster Frankenstein yet again in the classic Son of Frankenstein, making it his third and final time donning the infamous monster makeup. Though we may enjoy the film, Karloff himself thought it didn't hold a candle to its predecessors, but he quickly got over his disappointment after his first and only child, Sarah, was born in November of 1938. After Sarah was born, Karloff became bored and unsatisfied with what Hollywood was giving him, so he turned to Broadway where he met Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss, who gave him a role in the infamous black comedy Arsenic and Old Lace, which would go on to become one of the longest-running plays in American theater history. It was this role that stamped Karloff as a major star and a well-versed actor. When Karloff returned to Universal, he was welcomed with open arms, but he was still being offered low-budget monster sequels such as House of Frankenstein, which was a more ironic role considering Karloff did not play the monster, but the doctor instead. I personally love this film because I can't help but chuckle when they're interrogating Karloff's character and they tell him he knows nothing about Frankenstein. Imagine that. After this role, Karloff found himself signing with RKO Studios, which gave him the opportunity to play in fixed-budget suspense horror films. He credited the studio head Val Luton as the man who rescued his soul. His first role with RKO was based on Robert Louis Stevenson's The Body Snatcher, for which he had played a homicidal grave robber. This was also the last film Karloff starred in alongside Bela Lugosi. Karloff grew more and more frustrated with being typecast as a monster, but had more pressing matters to deal with on the home front. This included the divorce of his wife and the mother of his daughter, Dorothy Stein. As his daughter Sarah recalls, she has no clue what transpired between her parents, but remembered her father marrying her stepmother the day after the divorce became finalized. By April of 1946, Karloff had married Evelyn Hope Helm, a very close friend of his family, making this the fifth woman he had married. The post-World War II films introduced nuclear monsters and kaijus to the screen, which gave Karloff a way out to return back to the stage. He appeared in such Broadway plays as The Linden Tree, The Shop at Sly Corner, and the play that inspired him from the very beginning, Peter Pan. It was after playing Captain Hook that Karloff inspired more and more children. In addition to Captain Hook, he also appeared on the radio to narrate radio shows and record readings of infamous fairy tales. By 1957, he was given a segment on Rosemary Clooney's show entitled Storytime with Uncle Boris, where he would often call out his daughter by name. Karloff had officially shed the layer of being typecast as a monster by appearing on Broadway so much that he received countless positive reviews and was actually up for a Tony nomination when he played Bishop Kershaw, who was the tormentor of Joan of Arc in 1955's The Lark, alongside Julie Harris. Despite aging and physical pain, Karloff still continued to work and seek new roles and challenges. Fellow co-star Roddy McDowell recalls starring alongside Karloff in 1958 in Heart of Darkness. He remembers Karloff being in such pain but never complaining once. 
Karloff's role as Kurtz was based on the novel of his favorite author Joseph Conrad and it was so impactful that movie buffs say they have never seen anything like it until Marlon Brando's interpretation in Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. Karloff gave so much of himself to film, the theater, and now television that in 1958 he was completely surprised by his friend Ralph Edwards on his show This Is Your Life, which gave guests the chance to recap their lives as they lived it with others who have memories with them. It was such a shock for Karloff, who had been living privately and quietly up to that point, and he hated telling stories about his personal past. After This Is Your Life with Karloff, the monster craze returned in the late 1950s with Shock Theater appearing on television. Malia Normie, aka Vampira, started hosting late night specials, and famous monsters of Filmland began hitting the magazine shelves. Boris Karloff, who was now in his early 70s, returned to the film for Frankenstein 1970, which was actually released in 1958, and he even was in a weekly television suspense series entitled Thriller. In 1962, he became the monster of Frankenstein just one more time alongside Lon Chaney Jr. and Peter Lorre in the show Route 66, followed by another horror appearance, this time out of makeup and starring with Vincent Price and Peter Lorre yet again in a reprisal of The Raven. Though he had made a slight return to the monster of Frankenstein and the genre of horror yet again, he didn't stay long. He went back to comedy and the stage when he performed in Carol Burnett's first stage show in 1965. He played a mild-mannered fella looking for a library book while Burnett, as the librarian, shivered in fright and only responded with allusions that gave the impression that Karloff was a psycho killer even though he was just an average Joe looking for a book on gardening. Karloff became one of the first males to wear drag for the girl from UNCLE as the psychotic Mother Muffin. When asked about playing a female, he reportedly leapt at the opportunity and was proud to do so. By 1967, Karloff gave us one of his most well-loved and highly rewarded roles as the narrator in How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which very quickly became a smash hit and one that awarded Karloff a Grammy Award for appearing on the soundtrack album. When he went to go pick up his award, his former agent Arthur Kennard recalls that Karloff thought the award was like a doorstop and propped his agent's door wide open with it, which it never moved. His pain got worse and worse as he got older and it got to the point where he was suggested to retire, but there was no way he could nor he ever wanted to. His daughter Sarah recalls that her father would show up to his later roles in a wheelchair and with an oxygen tank nearby. Karloff's very last role occurred in a Paramount Pictures feature entitled Targets, which highlighted the scary rise in gun violence in the 1960s. His role was that of an old horror actor who was caught in the crossfire of a random killer. That role in particular frightened Karloff because he knew it was based on real-life issues and incidents, and despite his personal feelings, he still reigned very successfully. His health was still on decline, but yet he never stopped working. In late 1968, Karloff made one more television appearance before returning home to London and being hospitalized with a respiratory infection. His agent arrived in London to be at Karloff's bedside to let him know that he was a star, he was loved, and he wanted to remind him that he was still on top. In February of 1969, after more than 200 plus roles in cinema, the theater, the radio, television, and so much more, Boris Karloff passed away at the tender age of 81. Although their fathers may be gone, Sarah Karloff and Bella Lugosi Jr. still travel to conventions sharing their stories and memories of their infamous upbringings which they hope can keep their memories and their father's legacies alive forever. 
And so lies the monster, the result of hard work, dedication, and passion. It's forever astounding to me realizing just how impactful and incredible Boris Karloff really was in his lifetime. Sure, we all love him dearly for bringing our favorite monsters to life, but I can say with absolute certainty that I now appreciate him even more for everything else he did. He was such a committed actor with a heart of fire, and may we never forget his resiliency and his commitment. Thank you Boris Karloff for leaving it all on the screen. May your memory and legacy be forever engraved in the hills of Hollywood and the walls of studios everywhere. Before we wrap up this episode, let's end on everybody's favorite note. These are the Eldritch Review interesting facts about the one and only Boris Karloff. As always, these facts come courtesy of IMDb, Internet Movie Database, so let's get started. Number one, when Karloff died, the New York Times obituary featured a picture of Frankenstein's monster, but unfortunately, the image was actually Glenn Strange in full makeup, not Karloff. Oops. Number two, he celebrated his 51st birthday during the production of Son of Frankenstein 1939 and remarked that he received the best birthday present ever, which was the birth of his daughter Sarah. He reportedly rushed from the set to the hospital in full makeup and costume. Okay, but can you imagine Boris Karloff, who is 5'11", walking into a hospital in full Frankenstein's monster makeup just to see the birth of his daughter? I would be excited, but I can imagine people losing their minds with fright, being like, what the hell is that, going down the hallways. Number three, Karloff was considered to be an anonymous actor by Universal, so much so that he was not invited to the December 6, 1931 premiere of Frankenstein. Can you imagine how horrible that would be? I'm sorry, even though you're anonymous, you still should get an invitation. I would be pissed, but that's just me. Number four, although he was fond of embellishing his past and telling that Karloff was a name that he plucked from a relative, his daughter Sarah made it abundantly clear that there was no such ancestor in his family tree as he had no Slavic nor Russian roots whatsoever. As uncovered by Canadian historian Greg Nesteroff, the most likely truth is that William Henry Pratt took the stage name Boris Karloff from the character in a 1904 book by Harold McGrath called The Man on the Box, which was made into a play in 1905 and later films starting in 1914. Prophetically, a passage in the book about Count Karloff seemed to foretell the actor's own spooky future. As a character says, I wonder if I'll run into Karloff. Karloff. The name chilled him somehow. Number five, on his marriage certificate to Grace Harding, Boris Karloff listed his profession as a broker. It is presumed to be real estate since his witness was Charles Burmeister, one of his partners in the real estate firm for which he worked for. The Vancouver Civic Directory then listed Karloff's address as Hornby Mansions. While Karloff would later particularly seek sympathy by telling that he was working menial jobs in Canada prior to fame and so distute that he couldn't afford a donut with his coffee, in reality he was living at the lap of luxury while holding a plush job in such a prestigious real estate firm. Now that's interesting. I don't know, I, I guess like if you really want people to feel bad for you, you'll fabricate anything, but I wonder why somebody like Boris Karloff, who he wasn't handed roles by any means, but like he at least had a chance to really win more than say Bela Lugosi. So it's like, why would you lie about your past and why would you lie about who you are? Just tell people the truth, but maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just my opinion. 
Number 6. Although he came close in a deleted scene from The Mummy 1932, much like fellow horror actor Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff never once got to share a kiss with a female co-star in a romantic scene during his entire Hollywood career. This was in part attributed to the fact that Karloff was dark-skinned due to his Indian heritage, and it would not have been acceptable in the old Hollywood because of his era. Wow. I mean, I guess it makes sense because, you know, Hollywood was wild back then, but it still sucks because it's like, things like that couldn't happen. And we laugh about it now in 2021, but yeah, that's the way it was back then. That's, that's crazy. Number seven, another lie from Boris Karloff. He claimed to have had back surgery shortly after Frankenstein 1931. However, several movies in which he had appeared without a shirt on, including The Black Cat and The Lost Patrol 1934, and several behind the scenes photos taken later, reveal that he had absolutely no scars whatsoever on his back. Hmm. Number eight, his daughter Sarah wasn't informed by her former stepmother and Karloff's widow, Evelyn Hope, that her father had died, nor had he been cremated. Allegedly, Evelyn had excluded everyone from Karloff's deathbed. Okay, now that sucks. That pisses me off. If my parent were to pass away and my step-parent or whoever that they're married to wouldn't tell me, I'd throw some hands, but that's just me. Number nine, Boris Karloff owed his fame and thereby his subsequent career to actor Bela Lugosi. For if it wasn't for Lugosi turning down the role of Frankenstein's monster because of the heavy makeup and the part being mute, the role would have never been available for Karloff, who only then had only been an extra and played in a few handful of movies. I'm telling you guys, Bela Lugosi's the real deal. You guys gotta appreciate it. And finally, and most interestingly, number 10, comedian Tony Karloff has claimed since the 1940s that he was the son of Boris Karloff and has appeared in vaudeville nightclub acts touted in press ads as Tony Karloff, the son of Boris Karloff. Allegedly disowned, it is unclear which of Karloff's many ex-wives could have been Tony's mother. Reportedly aware of this, interestingly enough, Karloff never denied being the father. Man, I wish DNA tests were around back then. That would have been so cool to find out. And on that note, creeps, that concludes today's episode of Boris Karloff. I hope you have enjoyed listening as I've enjoyed learning about it. I want to express my huge gratitude to the 1998 documentary Boris Karloff the Gentle Monster and Karloff.com for all of the amazing information and facts which contributed to the making of this episode. You can find The Gentle Monster on YouTube and Karloff.com on any supporting web browser. Remember to follow The Eldritch Review on Facebook under the name at The Eldritch Review Podcast, or you can find us on Instagram at The Eldritch Review. Also, if you would like another way and method to support The Eldritch Review, consider contributing to The Eldritch Review's Patreon page. You can pledge any amount from $1 to $100, and depending on which level you choose will determine the benefits you receive. Link is in the Instagram bio to contribute. And finally, be sure to check out all of our brand new Eldritch Review merchandise on the Eldritch Merch Store, featuring more monster tees by Creep and good friend of the Eldritch Review, Austin Webb, and some brand new accessories. Accessories include the new iPhone cases from models 6 and 6S to iPhone 12 Pro Max, pins and buttons, and all new clampable COVID-19 pandemic masks. Be sure to purchase your merchandise today. Link to shop is also in the Instagram bio. Next week's episode will feature my personal most favorite universal and classic horror actor of all time who has inspired so much of what I do, from my love of horror to the Eldritch Review itself, Bela Ferenc DJ Blasco, otherwise known as Bela Lugosi. 
Prepare for a soppy ass episode because Bela means so much to me and I have been looking forward to doing this episode for a really long time now. So, until next week.